democratize data to allow everyone in the organization to make better decisions. So with giving people the ability to access data and analyze data, you also have to give them the authority and the freedom to make better decisions based on that data. And if you create hierarchical bottlenecks in this system, it would just stifle innovation. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Bernard Marr, internationally best-selling author, futurist, and keynote speaker. He advises and coaches many of the world's best-known organizations and was voted by LinkedIn as one of the top five business influencers in the world and the number one influencer in the UK. On this episode, Bernard and Cindy discuss why businesses should treat AI as a focused strategy rather than a resource-draining experiment, five ways to determine how to implement AI as a strategy that addresses the needs of your business and overcoming a company culture's resistance to change. They also talk about how to ensure that AI augments rather than replaces humans and what it means to nowcast versus forecast in a post-pandemic world. All that and more on today's episode with Bernard Marr. Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. This week on The Data Chief, we have somebody who needs no introduction, Bernard Marr, futurist, visionary, big data expert, storyteller expert, author, just everything. Bernard, welcome. Thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. Now, Bernard, you're from the UK, but where are you calling in from today? Uh, I am based in the UK at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm originally from, from Germany where I grew up, but I, I now live in the UK. So I'm just half an hour north of London. Okay. So now you already revealed something I didn't realize because your LinkedIn profile doesn't give too much history and you don't tweet all these personal things. So where in Germany did you grow up? I grew up near Hamburg, a beautiful city in the north of Germany. And um, I then... Um, went to university in Germany um, after I finished my my first degree in in engineering and business. I then moved to Cambridge to study a bit more at Cambridge University. They then offered me a job, which was great. So I didn't need to find a new job. And I then joined the research team there. And the rest is history. I stayed here. I met my my wife in England and now the UK is home. Oh, good. I don't know if you know. Uh, so my husband is English, <laughs> but I took him over here. So we met in Switzerland, but I brought him to the US. But we go back to England a lot. And you and I first met, I'll take us back. So seven years ago, now 2013, in the beautiful country of, do you remember it? Norway, I think. Norway, was yes. It? Yeah. Yes. Do you, what was it? What was the event called? Gobi or Gobi. Yes. Lars, who Lars is also a serial entrepreneur, it seems. 
and has started his own um, very cool AI company. Yeah, exactly. No, this this was a great event. They had a yeah. really cool band playing there as well in the evening. It was very, very good. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. So so we've both traveled the world, talked to customers around the world. And I want to start with, so you, you are such a prolific writer. I believe 16 books, or is it more than that now? It's 18 now, I believe. 18. 18. <laughs> yes, because you published one in May and you just came out with another new one. Uh, tech Trends in Practice, the 25 Technologies that are Driving the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So I used to say it takes me nine months to write a book. Uh, how do you how do you write on so many innovative things? Like the pace of change is frenetic and you're out there distilling the knowledge. How do you do it? I just, I'm so excited about all of those topics and I speak to so many customers. I see so many exciting stories and I find it a really nice way for me to, to distill this all personally by actually writing it down. This is always a, the, the way I have learned. So instead of making my, my notes, I just write an article and in, in terms of writing books, I have now become pretty good at it that I am almost planning what I want to put into a book. And then I start writing articles to cover the various chapters in the book. And then later on, I, I will hold some content back. I will not write everything, but then I will turn some of the content I've written in my articles into a, a full length book. And so 25 is a lot to cover. I wish we could you know, do the podcast. <laughs> uh, we're going to do this two hours, Bernard. Can you clear your calendar? Um, we have uh, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, the, the the for me the the number one tech trend. So you you said that I've just published a book. So the the book that you're referring to was published in May called Tech Trends and Practice. But I've literally just now published a new one called The Intelligence Revolution. Revolution, right? Transforming yeah. your business with AI. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was binge reading overnight <laughs> <laughs> and your, and your Forbes articles every, every week, it seems. So tell me though. So let's start with the intelligence revolution. Let's start broad. I love this quote. I guarantee your business is going to have to get smarter, whether you're a small startup to a global corporation to a digital native. How can, I, I think digital natives almost have had a head start, but if you're talking to a global corporation and, and many, I, I'm sorry to say, only just now are embracing the cloud and augmented analytics, where do you tell them to start? For me, especially in the current climate where businesses need to really think very carefully about where they invest, I, th I think is even more important than ever to start with their own strategy. And I, I think um, AI is not something to experiment with. It will help you transform your business if you think about this strategically. And for me, when I talk to companies, we basically 
take different angles that will make this a little bit easier. So the, the first angle is that AI can help you make sense of your data. It can help you transform your data-driven decision-making. It helps you to automate some of the extraction of insights from your data. So facilitating data-driven decision-making is the first one. The second lens is around customers and helping you to better understand your customers. So AI and data helps you to predict what your customers are going to do. It helps you to understand what they're doing. And there's an increasing need to move this to real-time analytics, um, especially what we've experienced during this, this pandemic is that data sets that were even six months old are no longer, longer relevant. So we need to really figure out how to use data to understand customers, which then also leads to the next two lenses, which is to think about more intelligent services you can deliver to your customers. So if you really understand them in real time, you can then personalize services, you can deliver smarter services to them. And the same applies to products, which the, which is the next lens. So really figuring out if you're a product company, how you can make your product smarter. And again, we see this now in all kinds of products from cars to washing machines to, to toothbrushes. All of them are becoming smarter and they're using AI to, to deliver a better service. So there's also a link between those two that very often products that become smarter then also transition to becoming more of, of a service rather than a product. And then the, the final lens, the fifth lens is to think about your, your own business processes and using AI to streamline those and, and optimize your processes and drive efficiencies. Yeah, so that's a, a lot packed in there. I'm going to go back to what you started with, though, that AI is is not to experiment with it. But would you say you have to at least start with experimentation? Or again, I think there's some really visionary organizations out there that understand the potential and have a desire to link it to the strategy. But if they don't have the expertise, hard to get talent, don't we start with experimentation? Or is your point just, it's got to be bigger than that, faster than that? I, I think it's okay to start small, but I, I think the key message that I would like to, to send out is that you have to start strategically. You don't want to just experiment for the sake of using AI and building the expertise. I think you should start where it really matters to your business. And then starting small is a good, if especially if you're designing your own AI systems, that's a good, good approach because you need to, as you said, get the talent, you need to get the technology right, you need to get the data right. But also I feel that lots of AI is now available so easily via as a service solutions. If you're key application is around customer intelligence and you might have Salesforce as your tool to do this. Salesforce is delivering great customer intelligence and AI in the background to make this all work. If you want to use AI to improve your IT operations, again, if you use companies like Oracle or Amazon or Microsoft or IBM, they will have intelligent databases in the background use AI. So lots of this, you don't actually need a lot of expertise for, you just need to make sure you start using it. 
Yeah. So I like this distinction. It's aligning to the strategy. I think that's really important. I often say it's aligning to the business outcomes. 100%, I buy into the data-driven decision-making, but one area that people struggle with is they see the value of this, but that culture still remains a barrier. In fact, last, uh, in, in August, MIT awarded the CDOs, um, TD Ameritrade in the U.S. Department of Defense. And in the awards, they all said, gosh, the culture transformation was so hard. How do you advise customers to battle that? That's a very good point. And actually, I spend a whole chapter in my, my book on, on culture and leadership because this is so important and such a key barrier and, and enabler. For me, it has to start at the very top of the organization. There has to be some real belief and buy-in and understanding of what this technology can now do. And I spend so much of my time talking to um, executive teams and boards and across all industries. And I'm regularly surprised by the fact that many know very little about what AI can actually do today. So there's a huge level of education that needs to be done. Yes. And then I think once the top of the organization understands what can be done, then it's really important to take everyone with you on this journey. So it's about communicating, engaging, because I also feel that there's lots of scaremongering and lots of fear. If you mention the word AI, people become scared about their jobs and, and the change that this might bring. And, and this is really important that you actually put the people into the driving seat and say, okay, let's use this technology to make your jobs better. Let's make our services better our product better and oh, in the end, our company more successful. Yeah. So I do. And you've very specifically said that it will be a net job creator, but it will be different jobs. Is that right? Completely. So the, the word I like to use is it will augment all our jobs rather than replace them. And augmentation means it will change the jobs that we'll do. It will also create some new jobs that don't exist today. I, I'm a firm believer that uh, a lot of jobs we will have in, in five or 10 years time don't exist today. In the same way that was the case, if we look back 10 years ago, if someone said you are going to be a social media influencer, you, you're going to be a data scientist, people just didn't know what those jobs were. Yeah. So I, I think it's about augmentation. And I, I work with a healthcare service here in the UK and one of the job roles they find really difficult to recruit for at the moment is radiologists because radiologists have always been held up as one of the jobs that will be very easily automatable. So we can automate those jobs very easily in the future because nowadays if you combine machine vision and AI, they can interpret CD scans very easily. They can understand where pre-cancer cells are developing. They never get tired. They never miss anything. But at the same time, if we can't recruit radiologists now, this is a really big problem. So for me, it's really important that we look at every single job in our organization and say, okay, what will AI mean for this in the future? How will this augment this? So for my hope is that a radiologist in the future will spend more time with patients to maybe define a unique treatment plan for them. Maybe radiologists in the future will spend more time researching and advancing the field. And 
spent more time with AIs to develop those systems and make them better. So it will change the job and hopefully for the better, because if you, if I think about the job of of a, a radiologist, should they really be sitting, interpreting scans eight hours a day? If they were honest with themselves, this is not what they're what they want to do and probably not the this is not how they really leverage their human potential but doing some of the other things engaging with with patients in an empathetic way to really help them understand what a certain diagnosis means developing personalized treatment plans doing research advancing the field all of these are really exciting things yeah i'm sure they would much rather spend time on it's the higher value work. And I think it's also showing them that it, it helps them get to the right diagnosis faster, more consistently. I mean, there's research that shows that a radiologist will have a different interpretation of a scan at like 8 a.m. in the morning versus 8 o'clock at night, whereas the AI does not. Um, and yet this this scares people, but I like your change management view of shifting the work to the higher value where we can advance medicine and personalization better. Absolutely. But this is change is always scary. And therefore, I I think it's really important that you don't do change to people, but we take everyone with us. And I think having this dialogue, this open discussion with everyone in the organization to say, okay, this is what AI can now do. Let's sit together and work together to redefine your job. Let's redefine our services. Let's redefine what we do as an organization to really drive our business performance. Because if you stick your head in the sand and you don't do it, you will simply be left behind by other companies that do this better. And they will deliver a smarter, more personalized service. They will have more streamlined business processes. And so for me, there isn't really a choice, but it's important that we do this right and, and actually take people with us. Yeah. So to take people with us, you started by talking about education. When you work with customers, what are you finding truly resonates? Is it time or is it these AI and um, data and analytics 101 executive sessions or is it having the prototypes that paint a vision of the future or is it bringing um, customers together sharing best practices i think it's a bit of all of that one of my clients is is shell and i help them to develop their data strategy and one of the things that we realized very early on is that you have to invest in in skills in training in awareness in taking people with you and interestingly when i work when i work with customers i actually tell them that they should expect to invest a similar amount of time and money in the cultural transition and the skills development as as they would expect to invest in technology yeah yeah and And they don't right no i mean they 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 think it should just happen the soft stuff is the hard stuff yeah exactly and some of the things shell did is they firstly they had lots of education sessions so we we talked to the the senior decision makers the boards and then shell also partnered with coursera and udemy to develop customized courses for everyone they also developed a community around data science and ai that that continuously meets up virtually and and communicates 
And then they created really interesting job roles, what they call data translators. So they are basically people that sit between the business function and between the analytics team that speak business, they understand the business challenges, but they also understand enough about data science to bridge the gap. Yeah. And then they have rec regular hackathons where they actually um, get people together and say, hey, let's, let's look at your business problems and see how data and AI can actually help you solve those problems. And one of the best examples of these kind of hackathons is I've seen in, in Walmart, another one of my customers. So Walmart wanted to, again, create this environment where any business user could simply sit down with a data scientist and say, okay, how can we use data? How can we use AI? And they created these data cafes. So in the uh, Bentonville headquarters, they created this Starbucks that basically allows anyone to grab coffee and then sit down with the data scientist and say, okay, I've got this business challenge. How can I use data? How can I use AI to help me solve this problem? And I, I think this handholding is really important that we actually bring people with you in these continuous discussions are really important. Yeah, I love the idea of a data cafe. That's excellent. You know, of your five point list of where to start and the opportunities. The second one was on the customer experience and the predictive analytics. However, in a COVID world, our past data makes it really difficult to do this. So you talked about real time. And recently, The Economist hosted something where the head of AI research from JP Morgan talked about not forecasting, but really now casting. What do you think of this? And what do we do when our AI needs a lot of data and usually it's past data? So in a pandemic where business models are upended overnight, how does an organization still do this and do it well? Yeah, I, I, you make the right points that exactly that the, the timeframes are shifting um, and We've seen this accelerated pace of change now for some time. What this pandemic has done is just, just put a rocket under it and, and changed it even faster. And what businesses like, like Walmart are doing is that they're only actually, they, and they've done this now for a very long time. They only actually take into account the last 90 days of transactions of their transaction data to make predictions about trends and what people might want to buy. And especially during this pandemic, where so many consumer behaviors shifted completely, uh, data that is a few months old is no longer relevant. So, uh, and I, I think the entire world is becoming more used to using real-time data. Governments yeah. are now looking at the pandemic and how it is spreading and, and how the different policies are working and they're making decisions based on data and science every single day as the data changes. Yeah. Is so is this also where external data comes into play? And and I know 5G is one of your top technologies for the industrial revolution. What are your thoughts about these two things? Absolutely. So the, the problem is that 
organizations only use less, they already only use less than 1% of the data they already have in their organization to make any meaningful decisions, let alone all the external data they can now access. So it's really important to think about all the external data we now have access to. So one of my favorite examples is I was working with a construction company recently and they wanted to monitor how well they're making progress on their own construction sites and also how their their own progress was compared to their competitors and one of the data sources they then explored was satellite image data because there's data that is continuously generated and they could simply use machine vision and ai to analyze their own construction sites and compare them to their competitors. And this basically now gives them a, a real time uh, dashboard of how well their, their construction sites are progressing based and compared to their competitors. So there's so much data out there from satellite data to, to weblog data to all the data of all the devices that we now carry around and and 5g i guess is is a key enabler of this whole internet of things environment where we have more connected devices to the that are connected to the internet and that they are continuously collecting and streaming and analyzing data for us yeah so there's a lot in there so so the image recognition I think is an interesting use case, but you said, you said something that <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. We use less than 1% of the data we captured. So I guess you're including the dark data, the semi-structured data, but that's pretty damning in my view. Absolutely. We capture a lot, well, less than 1%. I was thinking, you know, I often think about it's maybe less than 10% of the relational data is available to analytics. Uh, am I wrong here or is your 1% also all that dark data too? No, it's, it's all some of the semi-structured data. So okay. all the data that, that companies hold. But but you're right. For me, the problem is that lots of companies have become very good at hoarding data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess to some extent you would blame some of the vendors for this because they want to sell their, their cloud storage solutions. And if you listen to companies like Google and Amazon, they would say, okay, we never throw away any bit of data because at some point it could be really important that you have this data point from 10 years ago. And I think the discussion we've just had on the importance of real time data, for me, there is a data is going out of date. And, yeah. and we need to be aware of this. And instead of just storing everything, I actually, with my clients, we often look at this, what's the minimum amount of data we can store that will generate the most value. So if you can approach this strategically and say, okay, what are the most important strategic challenges we have as a business? How can data help us if we then focus on collecting those data points and those data sets that will help us solve those problems, you very quickly get to this 80-20 rule where actually you're generating 80% of the value with 20% of the data. Wow, that is a total flip. And and I will say though, I often talk about what is the point of collecting all this data and storing it if you can't get to it for the insights. Um, and I do want us to flip this. So now I'm wondering, a, a European client told me they recently purged like 10 years of history. And I was, I like almost choked on that. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think the analytics technology is getting there now where you can actually leverage that data, but too late. They purged it 
it must have been a client of yours. <laughs> um, so, and for me, it comes back to the cost benefit of all of this too. So if you have a great budget and storage is becoming cheaper by the minute, you might as well put it somewhere in into a storage system that is cheaper. For me, it again, comes back to having a good data strategy. So you don't need all of your data in your accessible data warehouse that costs a lot of money to run in your data center. You can put it somewhere on a shelf in a cheap storage system if you're worried about this. So for me, it's about figuring out what data you actually need. And what we did in, in Shell is that they, and the other problem is that we have so many data silos. So yes. in Shell, they wanted to create a really meaningful data lake that, that brings all of the data together. But they said, so we've got petabytes of data, but we don't want to just dump this all into this data lake. We want for every bit of data we are now putting in this data lake that cuts across all our businesses is that we have to have a very clear business case. So they now put a process in place where they had to define a very clear business question saying, okay, this is the strategic challenge. This is the business question. This is the data we need. And therefore, this is why we need to put it there. And then you worry about the data governance and the quality and everything else. And you can actually do this for the most strategic data sets. And you can't do this for everything. So I like that. In fact, really the way ThoughtSpot typically sells, we like somebody to have a clear business case before you even start using the platform. However, I'm also thinking when you don't have that strong leadership um, that understand the art of the possible, if you picture the visionaries that are in the trenches, um, how do we inspire them to help define the business case to see the art of the possible with these new technologies? Yeah, for me, this is another really good case for having these data translators in there or having a role spanning um, the business and data science, because that helps to go both ways. So if business users want to understand how they can use data, they can then use the data, data translators to engage with the data scientists that work in the trenches. But it also goes the other way around, where if they have some interesting ideas about how to use data, if they have some use cases and some some success stories, data translators can help them translate it the other way as well. Yeah. So the, the data, the business translators and data translators, some of this, I think, is upskilling and cross-fertilizing these, these jobs, these roles. What have you seen works best? Is it the the data and technology people going into the business or is it the business people gaining more of the AI and analytical skills? That's a very good question. I, I think from what I've seen in practice and what seems to work best is business people going into the data science and understanding it more. Learning just enough. And so, so if we follow this thread, you, um, another visionary, prolific author in this space, Tom Davenport, he talks about the culture needing to be from the top that you referred to as well. But Tom also talks about the grassroots 
disruption. So if we have these business translators and the data translators, do you think that works? Do you think organizations can really disrupt themselves from the grassroots with these people? Yeah. So for, for me, there's a different layer. And I, I completely agree that organizations that for me, this is more the, the, the way you design your organization and the way you structure your organization and the hierarchical approach that you have. And for me, it's more what, what organizations need to do in order to act, to mobilize their grassroots. And I, I very much agree with Tom. I was just speaking to him the day before yesterday is to have the right culture in place that allows decision making to deep, to be distributed across the organization so this for me is another big inhibitor when i talked about culture actually if all the decision making in the organization is concentrated at the top you will not have an innovative an innovative environment where people can now use data where you democratize data to allow everyone in the organization to make better decisions so with giving people the ability to access data and analyze data, you also have to give them the authority and, and, and the freedom to make better decisions based on that data. And if you create hierarchical bottlenecks in the system, it will just stifle innovation. Yeah. So really empowering the front line. So th these organizational things, these data translators are often led by a chief data officer. And I, you're better at predicting things than I am, but I predicted even before COVID, the start of 2020, that this role, we would see a, a reasonably high churn rate of 25% because they get caught in the middle. They're trying to drive change and they're trying to navigate entrenched IT systems ownership. They're trying to lead the business forward and the good ones either get fed up and move on or they get recruited to go elsewhere. Is this prediction too high or do you think you, you said the pandemic has lit a fire under organizations? What do you think the impact is on the role of the CDO? Yeah, I completely agree with you that it is going to drive churn. And I, I've now spent so many years in this industry that I also know that these frustrations are not new. They've been there for a long time. And partly because it, organization, so for, for me, incumbent organizations with old IT infrastructure, they're really struggling. They're finding it very difficult to recruit someone, even if they have a, a vision in place and they want to use AI to transform their, their services and transform their, their business processes. Making it happen is a really big undertaking, especially when you have to deal with lots of legacy systems. Yeah. So this is something that I find, I, I find hugely frustrated chief data officers and, and data scientists everywhere. Yeah. So what do we do with those? IT groups that are hard to move along. And even this was, um, so this award winner, the, um, from MIT, the Ameritrade he talked about, yeah, we had, we just wanted to do a data lake and trying to convince the NetEza people. <laughs> this is going back a few years, but it was IT who was most resistant. And yet you can't just shut it off overnight and you can't just outsource everyone overnight. So how do we bring them along, but bring them along quickly? Yeah. And for me, the, the answer is going back to what I said before. And I, I think IT 
I think IT departments are no different to any other department in the organization that they are worried about the change. They, many people have built their career training on specific systems, training on specific processes, and the, the current IT infrastructure is challenging a lot of this when we move to the cloud, when we move, move to systems that are so different to what we had before. So for me, the key is starting with your strategy and then bringing everyone with you and then making sure that they are in charge of the change. So even if you have a great vision and then you try to impose this on your IT team, this will not work. But if you put them in the driving seat, it will hopefully work. And and again, for me, it's, it's about communicating. It's making sure that they see the benefits to the organization, but also to themselves, because if they embrace modern technologies, if they understand trends much better, if they embrace it, it makes makes them much more valuable in, in the future of their career. Yeah, I really like that, putting them in the driver's seat. Um, it, it's a concept of having leadership at every level, not just mm. at the top. That's great. So I want to come back to your 5G um, point because we're agreeing so much, but I have a fear about 5G that it will actually push our infrastructure over the edge. Is this a misplaced fear? It's a very interesting question, and I'm I'm not sure I I can confidently answer this yet. You're um, allowed to I, disagree with me. We don't all, <laughs> we don't always have to be agreeable. <laughs> no, and and I, I and I I think the answer is I don't know. Mm. I mean, I I think people have well we've predicted that IT infrastructure will will blow up at some point because of the data volumes growing at this crazy rate, and so far this hasn't really happened yet. And I have high hopes that we will just stay innovative and and keep our systems running uh, for me what 5g will is it, it will just enable a lot of the things i talk about when i look into the future i tend to look five or ten years ahead across all of the different technologies and for me 5g will just enable ai it in in enable big data yeah. it will enable the internet of things and and another key trend it will enable is extended reality so augmented and virtual reality so some of these things we have we can only do in our office environments where we are connected with networks to our cloud servers in the future we can do this in a mobile environment which will really transform some of these technologies yeah so maybe in five to ten years yeah then i'm more comfortable with it i just picture right now with the mass work from home and even healthcare going to telehealth it's just pushing putting strains on the networks but maybe for sure in five to 10 years, I hope we're over that hump. Um, you do like virtual reality. And, you know, for those people who just picture it as gaming or shopping, give us a, your perfect business use case. There are so many, and <laughs> I am actually in the process of of writing a book on on extended reality. Another book, that we're, yes. That, that, <laughs> It'll that be we're, out in three months, right? <laughs> no, it will, it will be out next year, spring okay. next year. Okay. <laughs> Plan is to finish it by the end of this year. So, again, very similar use cases, but to to the ones around AI. But for me, especially in the environment we're in at the moment, it is enabling us to have a completely different customer experience. So 
That's just one example. My daughter needs glasses. What normally happens is you go to an, an optician, have your eye test. They then change your prescription. You then end up in the shop afterwards where they then have a small selection of glasses that you can try on. And the shop we go to, they basically, their approach to customer service is, okay, just try all of them and see which ones you like. And I think this is pretty broken in all levels. So in, in, especially in a pandemic where you don't really want to go into any shop, you definitely don't want to try on lots of glasses that people have tried on before. So um, companies in, 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 with again the progress in in the the headsets and the technology that we have in the future you can actually have your eye test done in vr so you simply put your 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 vr goggles on and and they are no longer as clunky as they used to be five ten years ago anything that's on the horizon is really sleek facebook has just launched one that almost looks like sunglasses so you would put your your goggles on and the cameras that point into your eye will measure your it's like a really advanced eye test that you can then take and once you've completed this it can then automatically give you a prescription and you can then go off and try on glasses in augmented reality or virtual reality where you can actually a bit like our instagram filters where you put nice little big ears on our our, our heads, you can then try on glasses and companies like uh, Warby Parker are now work, combining this with AI as well. So they're not only saying try on any glasses, they will then say, okay, this is, we've just analyzed the shape of your, your head. This is the kind of style you have. Here are glasses that would really suit you. And then you can try them on and, and wear them and then hopefully have them delivered the next day to your house. And for me, this is a complete transformation of how we interact with customers. So this whole try before you buy environment, I think is going to be absolutely massive. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Very futuristic, uh, but maybe less far out. You do like to talk about use cases in healthcare. And yet, do you worry about the ethics of this? And you wrote an article in the early days of the pandemic about how COVID-19 is changing our world and our attitudes to technology and privacy. Why could that be dangerous? Yeah, so I, I, I from anyone who's ever written, uh, read any of my my books, knows that I, I am a huge advocate of of privacy and and um, ethics around technology. This is for me a, a key enabler, and I believe that companies and organizations that don't make sure that they treat data with the respect and they don't keep it safe and they don't protect people's privacy will simply lose trust. And for me, the trust is the foundation of any relationship you will have with your customers in the future. So if customers don't trust you, they won't share data with you. And if you, they don't share data with you, you lose a huge competitive um, asset to your organization. Yeah. And yet trust is at an all-time low if you follow the Edelman trust barometer. So is it too late? How do we fix it? I think this is low for a reason because what we've seen 
is that lots of organizations have approached this whole data collection and analysis with in, in this wild west world where they try to collect as much data as possible without telling anyone what they're doing with it and then secretly uh, analyzing this data and and personalizing services without really engaging with consumers and i and some of this is still taking place today so for me there are some companies i i like apple's approach for example of how they're approaching privacy and i believe that companies that really value people's privacy and engage with customers will outperform their competitors in the future because consumers will become more aware of it and and healthcare data is i guess so personal to us that if if your healthcare records would be stolen people find out about your conditions and that is unimaginable for most of us so we need to make sure that this data is absolutely protected yeah and apple's even gotten more strict um you know just again again keeping that data protected i think is good so when an organization designs for ethics and you think about explainable AI, is this something that you think organizations should just wait for the regulatory bodies? Or does every company need to have their own internal AI ethics reviews? How do we institutionalize or make it part of the DNA? Yeah, I think waiting for the regulator is an extremely lame excuse that lots of companies take. They say, okay, there isn't any regulation, I'm not breaking any rules, and therefore I carry on doing it. And we all know that technology is moving so fast today in all of the different areas, be it AI or, or big data or 5G or any of them, the, the regulators are lagging behind by a long time. So by the time we have regulation, it is far too late. So for me, companies need to take the initiative. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing also organizations like the OECD and others that are putting guidelines in place for trustworthy and more ethical AI. And we see organizations actually taking a step here and, and lots of big AI companies are now coming together to say, okay, let's, let's jointly work together on better guidelines. We don't want to wait for, wait for the regulator. We want to start doing this better. Yeah. But so then you Google abandoned their AI ethics board. Mistake. You yeah, can't so comment. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we I can can't edit comment it out. on this, but, but <laughs> I, I, that is an interesting discussion. So if, for, for me, if you look if for if I I sometimes in my conversations talk about Apple versus Google, and for me Apple is the one that really values people's privacy, whereas Google has approached data collection very differently in the past, where they try to collect as much data as possible without necessarily sharing it with anyone. And I I think there's a real risk that Google could lose the trust of the people. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tough problem, but for sure one that I think companies have to get right and, and be proactive. We keep agreeing and I keep looking for a point of conflict. So I'll throw another one out there if I dare. Uh, this is a scary one because um, unfortunately, I feel like in COVID, we have poor data literacy, poor data fluency, and yet we've politicized it. 
And you wrote just such an inspiring article about all the ways that data and AI can be used to battle this pandemic. And I just see what disaster or not good uses of it, largely in the US, excellent in Taiwan, better in the UK, I would say. So is this a difference between our cultures and countries? Or um, do you think we're doing well using data and AI to handle the pandemic? No, I, I believe we're doing very badly at the moment. Okay, so we do agree on that. But initially, you were hopeful. You had so many great ideas. Yes, and, and I think there are some countries that I feel are using data really well. So you talked about Taiwan. I think they're doing it well. Com uh, countries like or places like Hong Kong are doing this quite well. And they are, and I find Germany is doing this quite well. And the, the difference is that they actually put some of the systems in place to really use data well. So in all of those countries that have really strong track and trace systems in place, and they had some of this in place even before the pandemic started. And they were then in a, in a situation where they could use the data really effectively to stop or mitigate the, the outbreak. Whereas I find that in the UK and the US, those systems were not in place. And sometimes people, uh, I, I fear that a lot of our politicians basically hide behind the data. They're saying, okay, we are looking at the data, we're following advice from data scientists and, and scientists. But what they're actually doing is they're trying to do sometimes the opposite. They're politicizing it, they're spreading fake news. And for me, one of the use cases of AI that I'm quite excited about is actually to identify fake news. So companies like Facebook and Twitter are now working very hard on developing algorithms that will pick up that someone is telling something that is is obviously wrong or, yeah. or goes against facts. And the more we can apply those in practice, the better. But we, we see that these in interesting battles starting between politicians and social media companies. Yeah, I mean, that was another interesting thing. Uh, Taiwan has a commitment to their citizens when there is fake news to correct it within two hours of noticing it. And they found that using humor helps it spread faster. So um, I just thought that was a fascinating concept. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope that we'll have smart algorithms that can can highlight things that are obviously fake and 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 people will actually start noticing those. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be too much of a downer on the use of data in COVID because I think there are some isolated, excellent examples in our respective countries. I know in England, telehealth went from zero to 97% overnight. Who would have thought? Yeah, this is an area I've I've talked about in many of my talks for such a long time now. And I I find this process is just so crazy that we when when I feel unwell, I need to ring the the doctor, make an appointment, go to the practice, wait there, they might be running late, I might be running late. And when all of this can be completely avoided with telehealth. So we've had a, a great family doctor that that 
did phone con con consultations really effectively, but on a phone call, you miss so many things, whereas on a video call, you don't. And, and for me, this is such a hugely effective way of, of delivering healthcare. And if you then again, combine this with AI, lots of this can be delivered as a self-service. So if you have a skin lesion and you don't know what this is, we now have an AI that can use the camera on your phone to detect how, whether this is a benign uh, growth or anything to worry about. And these AIs are much more accurate than, than a doctor because the doctor in their training might only see a few hundred. These AIs can be trained on thousands and ten thousands of images. So for me, it is not only, it, it, I think it will make healthcare, my hope is that it will make healthcare more, more streamlined, but also much more accessible across the world because these systems can be scaled. So if, if this is an app that I've developed, I, don't need to just make this available in my own country. I can make this available worldwide. Yeah. So for me, there's a real hope that it will will give more people access to better healthcare. Yeah, such a beautiful picture of the future, Bernard. So if I kind of recap your your big points, is that you've got to um, maybe start small, but strategically have a good data strategy put the people impacted by the change in the driver's seat and waiting for regulation in AI is totally lame. Would those be the three and, and a wonderful picture of the future of um, 5G and AI, but would those be your main takeaways? No, they're, they're great. My, my, my main message is actually that it is in, in our hands to use AI and data and all this wonderful technology to make our world a better place and a more human place. And, and this is all in our hands. And with, with any technology, you can use it for bad and for good. And we should make sure we, we use it for good. Yeah, definitely data for good. So if we do a, a quick lightning round, so tell me, so you like um, self-driving cars. What kind of car do you drive? <laughs> At the moment, I drive a, a Mercedes, um, uh, a, a GLS. German engineering. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's funny, I actually, one of the main reasons why, uh, one of my, my main sales points when I bought the car was it has to be able to do some innovative stuff like self-parking. And interestingly, I probably only used it five times only to show other people how it works in the very beginning. And I've never used it since. But I can't wait for proper self-driving cars. <laughs> oh, well, oh, you have to come to, I'm in New Jersey, so I have a, a Mini Cooper, but with a German um, engine. Cal yes. California is is Tesla land. Um yeah, so many Teslas. Yeah, and I'm 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 definitely eyeing eyeing with a Tesla. Okay, so and now that I know that you um, hail from Germany originally, so favorite sport? It has to be soccer, I think. Football. You mean football? Um, my, yes, you yeah, can say the so real my, word. <laughs> my my, I I've got two two boys that are eight and twelve, and they're both absolutely passionate about football. So it has to be football. Favorite team. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you don't want to lose moment, your followers here. At, Be at, careful. At, 
it, it, I don't actually have a team, but I have an interesting division in my house because my my eldest son supports Arsenal, and my youngest son, I'm not sure whether this is out of spite to his brother, supports their arch rivals Tottenham. Oh <laughs> <So>. yes, Tottenham. <laughs> yep. So, so it's an interesting dynamic. We had a there was a. A, a local derby, Tottenham playing Arsenal, and we had half of our of our TV room was plastered with posters of Tottenham. The other one was with Arsenal, and my wife and I sat in the middle, <laughs> keeping <laughs> the to peace. Be neutral. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine the World Cup is has always got to be an interesting time <laughs> it is there's there's a very interesting dynamic between the uk or between england and germany and yeah. some interesting history when it comes to football but I, I nowadays i probably feel more more english than than german okay well it's um yeah interesting times on that so i don't want to end on that uh, divisive note but um if i can i always like to end with if you think about everything you do the you know, such impactful work, but what are you most grateful for? Yeah, other than the obvious of of my having a beautiful family and being healthy, what I'm most grateful for is that I work in such an exciting field that can actually wait, make our world a better place, that can potentially address the, the world's biggest problems. And having this ability to work with amazing customers, amazing companies, amazing thought leaders who inspire me every day and and give me the opportunity to learn something new every day yeah i feel likewise bernard thank you so much thank you so much cindy thank you for tuning in to another episode of the data chief to learn more about today's guest recommend a future guest or listen to more of the show head over to thedatachief.com if you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BI Scorecard. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.